Kids, I hope you have a a wonderful time in the back. If you're remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to uh, John chapter 20 in your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy, you can obviously follow along uh, in the bulletin as well or on the screens that are behind me. Have you ever noticed that there are uh, certain themes that tend to emerge in a lot of the, the great stories, whether it's from Uh, great uh, myths or uh, great epics that we've read about in history, um, or it's, you know, superhero movies that we watch from time to time. There are certain themes that tend to recur over and over again. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, and and C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, they were chatting about this very thing one day. And they wondered, what if all of these great stories point to one great story of redemption? And it was a powerful conversation because it was that conversation that led to C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity. Uh, But one of the things that you see is a recurring theme in all these stories is the idea of resurrection. It's in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's in the Lord of the Rings, it's in uh, the Harry Potter movies, you know, it's in uh, even the superhero movies that we watch today. At some point, the protagonist in the story dies, and it's become so common for us that we even watch the movie and it's like, they're not really dead. We know that they're not really dead. They wouldn't do that. They're not really going to kill the protagonist. That's how common this theme uh, is and how it runs through our literature and through our stories. But while we often say that in movies and in stories, we never say that at funerals. We never look at a casket and think, well, they're not really dead. They're going to come back. And that's because resurrection often feels like it's our wish It's what we hope to be true, but it sometimes feels like the stories of fantasy or of myth. It's not reality, or is it? What if our wish for resurrection is actually rooted in the great story of redemption? What if death isn't final? What if death was defeated? And so to consider that question, we turn to John chapter 20, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 18, John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, the Lord, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't not, do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. 
But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Speak to us now as you have spoken to us throughout the ages. On this glorious Easter, reveal yourself and your will for our lives that we might live as your Easter people. We seek your face, O Lord. Hear our prayer through our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Easter every year is, is situated um, in, in March or April. It's really situated at the end of the winter months and uh, the beginning of the spring. And that's certainly by intention and by design. I've never been a person who's minded the winter months too much. I don't mind the cold uh, to a certain degree. Uh, but usually right around February, uh, I start to get an, an itch for uh, the springtime and the spring months. Maybe you're the same way and you... You feel in a similar way. And I know I'm starting to get antsy for spring when I start to think about um, my garden. And some of you have heard me talk about this before. We have at our home uh, these, these four little square boxes that sit on the side of our property. And right around February, every year, I start to think about, well, what are we going to grow in the garden this year? And I, I get a little excited about what it is that we're going to grow. And uh, one year, my wife even let me start the seeds in the house in February. That really only lasted one year. Um, and part of the reason uh, uh, it's a frustration for us is every year we try and every year we fail. Uh, every year we try to grow something different. Um, one year we try to grow flowers, others we try, try to do tomatoes. And every year, for some reason, by the time June or July rolls around, everything is dead. And it, of course, has nothing to do with my skill as a gardener. I blame the squirrels, the arch nemesis, my squirrels that eat everything before we have the chance to pick it. Uh, but every year, spring, hope, what's the hope springs eternal, every year we try to garden all over again, even knowing that it's probably going to be a, a colossal failure. Uh, but there's some joy for me as I put my fingers in the dirt. Well, I tell you that story because believe it or not, the Bible talks about gardens a lot. And you start to notice it if you pay attention. In fact, if you look at God's great story, this story of redemption, you discover that this story starts in a garden, 
It ends in a garden, and it has a few key garden moments throughout, including the resurrection of our Savior. So this morning, what I want us to do is look at this great story of redemption through the lens of a garden. And the first thing that you see is very straightforward. You see, if you open your Bibles, you turn to the first few pages on the book of Genesis, you see that humanity's story begins in a garden. Genesis chapter 2, it says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man who he had formed. You see, God's plan for humanity was to exist, to live and flourish in a garden paradise. That's why God placed our first parents, Adam and Eve, into a garden. They were placed there to, to work the garden, to enjoy the fruits of their labor, and it was spectacular. They had a perfect marriage. Adam and Eve had this perfect marriage that was overseen by God, a perfect relationship with one another. Uh, They had a perfect relationship with uh, the created world that was around them. Every time they planted a garden, it was wonderfully successful. They had a perfect relationship with God, their creator. But what we learn very quickly in this garden is that our first parents chose to rebel. They would rather be their own gods. They didn't want to submit and to serve God, their creator. So in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that they are exiled from this first garden. They are cast out east of Eden, and the ground no longer cooperated with their flourishing. You see, that relationship with the created world was broken. Their relationship with each other was broken. Their relationship with God was broken. And they were completely helpless to fix their situation. Helpless to atone for the mess that they had made. And this is how it all began. This is how our story of humanity began, and and we've been living with the mess of it ever since. We have messy relationships with the created world that is around us. We have messy relationships with one another. We have a broken relationship with God, and just like Adam and Eve, we are helpless to fix our situation, helpless, helpless to atone for the mess that we've made. But just as history began in the garden, what the Bible tells us is that in the end, there is a garden too. And so if you look at the first few chapters of Genesis and then you fast forward all the way to Revelation chapter 22, it says this. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, you know it tells about the end of all things and the end of history. It tells us that in the end, God will will bring a finality or a consummation to his plan of redemption. He will bring an end to all evil and injustice. He will wipe away all of our tears. He will restore flourishing. He will restore paradise and the right ordered of relationships that characterize peace. 
And the Bible at the end talks about a great wedding feast in a great city called a New Jerusalem. And it says that there's no need for any light in this city because the light of God's presence will illuminate all things. There will be no more tears. There will be no more suffering, no more injustice. And right in the middle of it all, right in the middle of this beautiful and great heavenly city, right in the middle of it is a garden. It's the Garden of Eden, but I think it's the Garden of Eden 2.0, even better than what we had at the very beginning. And in the middle of it is the Tree of Life, and it says there are trees all throughout it that provide food 12 months out of the year, meaning there is no want, there's no worry, there's no insecurity, because this garden paradise will last for all of eternity. And so the Bible starts in a garden, and the Bible ends in a garden. And the million-dollar question that we're confronted with as we read everything in between is this. How do we gain access to that garden paradise? How can we find our way into that paradise where there is no want, there are no tears, There is no suffering. How can we say goodbye to pain and injustice and death? How can we who are sinful rebels, just like our first parents, how can we gain entry into God's paradise? You see, as as Adam and Eve's children, we're certainly not worthy to enter into that paradise. But the gospel tells us that we can How is this possible? How can we enter access to that paradise? Well, the gospel tells us that we can because of two other key garden moments. The first of those key moments comes in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. The gospel tells us that on Thursday, just after the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples, they retire to a garden called Gethsemane. Jesus' disciples are very tired And so they take a nap or they go to sleep and Jesus withdraws to find a quiet place to pray. And what the gospel writers tell us is that in this moment, Jesus is moved to anguish. He knows that he's about to be betrayed and arrested. He knows that the cross is looming ahead of him and it will involve pure suffering, unimaginable suffering. And maybe he even knew that he would face the pain of his own father forsaking him because he would need to bear the weight of our sin. So in that moment and in that garden, he asks God the Father if somehow this cup could pass. Father, could there be another way? Could there be an easier or, or less painful way? And the divine answer from God was no. He would need to walk this path. And so in this garden of Gethsemane, Jesus submitted to the will of his father in heaven. Hebrews tells us he even submitted with joy, knowing the path that lay ahead of him. Moments later, he's arrested in that garden. He's stripped, he's beaten, he's mocked. Hours later, he is crucified. He takes his last breath, declaring it is finished. Why? Because he paid the debt that we could not pay. 
He bore the weight of sin that we could not. He satisfied the justice of God in love and in joy. He gave of himself so that you and I could be made whole. You see, because Jesus endured the garden of Gethsemane, he made it possible for you and I, by faith, to gain access to that garden paradise that is in heaven. But friends, the garden theme is not over. Because really, the climax of all of human history comes outside of a garden tomb. You see, the Gospels tell us that after Jesus died, he was buried in a tomb, a borrowed tomb, that was owned by a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea. And we know it's a garden tomb because when Mary goes to visit Jesus, like we just read, she initially mistakes him for a gardener who was working around the tomb and in the garden. And of course, as we read, there's a lot of back and forth with certain disciples running to the empty tomb and interacting with all sorts of angels. But Mary gets the special honor. And ultimately, she recognizes that this, was, this gardener is actually the resurrected Jesus when he calls her intimately by her name. But as I've thought about that story this week, I've thought, was she really wrong? Was she really mistaken? Of course, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He is our only hope of salvation. But I don't think it's too much of a stretch to also think of him as the gardener of heaven's paradise. You see, because death could not hold him, this gardener prepares for us the paradise of heaven. Because he died and rose again, you and I, who are rebels and sinners that we are, can gain access to the garden of paradise through faith. Because he was raised from the dead in that garden. Friends, I get it. Resurrection feels like the stuff of movies. It's fun to wish as we, as we watch movies and we read myths and epics. It's fun to wish that it is true, but we all know that reality feels a lot different. Death, it feels very final. But what Jesus shows us is that it isn't. The death, the sting of death has been taken away by our Savior. He lifted the condemnation of sin. So instead, death is simply an entrance, an entrance into his garden paradise. Why? Because that good shepherd is also the good gardener who invites us in with open arms into his garden paradise. Don't we all wish that resurrection could be true? Well, because of Jesus, it is. And if it is, that changes everything. One commentator wrote that the message of Jesus' resurrection transforms a hopeless end into an endless hope. Friends all over the world, Christian pastors, guys like me, will preach sermons today on the resurrection of our Savior. And they'll offer really good arguments for the historicity of the resurrection and they'll talk about proofs and and evidential material and there's some really good stuff there that is worthy to consider. But at the end of the day, it is only the heart and eyes of faith that can truly embrace the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
Francis Spofford wrote, we don't have an argument that solves the problem of the cruel world, but we do have a story. And the resurrection story at the end of the day is a victory story. It's a story rooted in time and in space, in history and fact, but it is ultimately a victory story that you and I get to participate in by faith. By faith, we get to look into the eyes of our great gardener and experience eternal life. Let's pray.